Welcome to the Faculty Chronicles, a podcast where we speak with Merida College faculty members on important issues that impact our campus or impact our world. I'm your host, Tom Perry, and today we are pleased to welcome Dr. Ben Ebenhack, Professor of Petroleum Engineering, who also has extensive experience in the industry. Dr. Ebenhack joined the college in 2010 and is now the department chair. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, our topic today is rising gas prices, which is what I like to call one of the top water cooler conversations in the U.S. right now. And, uh, and prices have obviously soared to $4 a gallon or above that. Everyone we know is talking about it. So I just would like to ask you if you can just start just by telling us, explaining. I mean, there's some obvious reasons why we're here, but it's so people just can kind of understand why gas prices are where they are. Yeah, certainly uh, gas prices have always been volatile. Uh, there's uh, a, a long history of boom and bust cycles in the petroleum industry. Uh, crude oil prices, of course, lead ga gasoline prices. And uh, as far back as J.D. Rockefeller, uh, his driving motivation for trying to establish monopoly was to stabilize the wildly erratic markets from boom and bust. Uh, so part of the answer is simply that we've been in a bus cycle for a while. We've been in very low gasoline prices. And that inevitably means at some point you come back out of it with higher prices. So some of it is the natural response that we, we would have been climbing out of these low prices uh, just because of the natural cycle of uh, supply and demand. Of course the uh, Russian invasion of uh, the Ukraine uh, is threatening significant supplies. The, the U.S. and Western Europe and many allies have been considering uh, banning all imports of Russian oil, uh, which would take a, a, a significant chunk of the market offline. One of the realities that we're looking at right now, uh, as, as far as I can see, is that the world has less uh, surplus production capacity than it has commonly had in the past. Uh, Saudi Arabia has been a swing producer for many years. Uh, they cut back when prices are low. They open valves literally, uh, is how they were able to increase production for many years uh, when prices got high. They still have surplus production capacity, but not like they used to. Uh, Saudi Arabia announced a little over a year ago that uh, Gohar, the world's largest oil field, has entered permanent decline, uh, which tells me that their, uh, their big stockpile that they could go to is just not, uh, it's certainly still there. It's certainly still a huge producer. Let me be clear about that. But it doesn't have the surplus capacity that it used to. When you layer those factors together, we're seeing this dramatic rise in prices. Uh, and uh, I suspect it will go higher uh, once bans are in effect. Uh, Iran is another player in this picture. Uh, if they negotiate uh, out of the sanctions that they're currently under, they could, they could provide some of that 
surplus capacity. If those negotiations do not work and the, a large share of their production stays offline, then uh, prices could skyrocket even much more than they already have. Uh, as far as um, what we can expect in the future, uh, I'm always aware that predictions of the future are almost certainly wrong. Uh, it's one of the few things I can predict, is that when I make a prediction it will be wrong. Uh, but knowing a little more about it than most people, uh, I think that I can say we, we can expect prices to probably stay high uh, un unless treaties are reached, peace breaks out, uh, then uh, they could drop back. I doubt that they will drop back to the lows that we saw in the last five, six years. I mean, you've talked about, the, you know, the, the price will probably rise some more and then again, not go as far down. But when you think about or what we hear sometimes in the news, you, we've heard President Biden mention the release of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. I think sometimes that gives folks a misperception that somehow that's going to magically just flood us with, with petroleum again and everything will be fine. Can you explain I think, first off, why that exists. I don't think a lot of people understand why that is there, but what releasing some of that really does do, or why do we release that? Okay, yes. Uh, the SPR, Strategic Petroleum Reserve, is, is there to ensure that we have uh, access to strategic supplies of oil. Uh, and, uh, especially in the 1970s, we were we became notoriously dependent on imports of oil, uh, and we need to be able to uh, meet those needs. Uh, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is not the same as the Naval Petroleum Reserve, uh, most famously at Teapot Dome uh, in Wyoming. The uh, <clears throat> But the purposes are similar, that they're both meeting strategic needs. The Naval Petroleum Reserve was established early to uh, make sure that our navies <laughs> would, would have access to oil if we had to go to war. Uh, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve has been used a little bit more loosely, uh, and, uh, and a number of presidents, both Republican and Democrat, have used a, a, a short-term release to suppress uh, rising gasoline prices for political reasons. Personally, I'm commonly critical of that. Uh, in this case, though, I would say we probably are in a strategic challenge, if not crisis. Um, and so I think this is probably one of the classic times that the SPR was created to, to address. Uh, however, the total amount of oil there is relatively modest compared to U.S., let alone global demands. Uh, it can make a short-term impact, uh, but uh, it cannot uh, meet a, any large share of our, of our energy needs for more than a few days, <laughs> literally. So uh, it's... Uh, uh, probably prudent and appropriate to to use some of it now. I would hope that we don't use all of it, 
because then we don't have any padding left if, if um, hostilities also lent to a blockade of some kind or cutting off one of the international pipelines. So you mentioned uh, the the shortage of the 1970s and, you know, the students who are here now have no memory of that. I mean, I will even admit I was young when that was going on. Is that something you could see happening again? Could we get to a place where there is a true shortage that you could not be able to get gas on a certain day? I can't uh, imagine that it's not possible. Uh, um, in in most ways, of course, the crises of 73 and 79 were political. Uh, the Arab oil embargo of 73 was in uh, political response to Western support of Israel during the Yom Kippur War. Uh, and from, uh, sadly enough, I wasn't all that young in 73, but uh, uh, still most of my knowledge of it's from reading. The, uh, I honestly think that OPEC was surprised by how effective that, that embargo was. Uh, they'd been something of a paper tiger in international markets up until that time. Um, the, um, uh, anyone who has a lot of time on their hands, Daniel Jurgen is a f famous uh, economic historian of the uh, oil markets and his thousand page book has uh, probably a good hundred pages explaining that in some detail. Um, but uh, the uh, uh, then the seventy nine embargo that we issued against uh, uh, Iran was in retaliation for uh, taking hostages at the American embassy. So both of those were really political crises. Neither of them were physical shortfalls in the world supply, uh, and so I I can't see a fundamental difference between either of those circumstances and what we're facing now with the. Uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine and all of the political ramifications around that. I'm going to assume most people won't want to hear their, is there something positive that can come out of this when they're, you know, thinking about spending this much for their gas and those kind of things. But, you know, we talk about, you know, the environment. We talk about all these different things. Are there some positive things you could see coming out of a situation like this when gas prices get up like this? I, I know that you're right. No one's going to want to hear this part of it. Uh, and certainly I will uh, never consider running for political office based on what, I, especially based on what I'm about to say. But yes, I would say there will be some positive aspects to higher energy prices besides my students getting more job offers. But uh, from a, a more global perspective, uh, if you want to see alternative energy develop, uh, I can't think of anything that will facilitate that more than high energy prices. Uh, if you want to see conservation, I can't think of anything that will facilitate that more than high energy prices. If you want to mitigate climate change, uh, I, high energy prices will drive that, I think, faster, stronger than anything. And if you look at the history of energy use, and energy prices, uh, I think that bears out what I'm saying very strongly. The, the correlation is, is extraordinarily strong. 
So uh, to continue down that path, are there some examples that you might share with people of things that they could do during these times that maybe help them meet some of those sure. needs or, or, or to help soften the blow a little bit? Sure. Uh, there are some, and I'm sure many of your listeners have heard many of these uh, comments before. Uh, there are short-term things people can do. Uh, one of my favorites is don't sit and idle your vehicle when you're waiting, uh, turn the engine off, it'll turn back on again. Uh, we're, we're not uh, on the north slope uh, of Alaska where uh, the, the fuel could freeze in the, in the line uh, if you turn it off. So that's a simple thing, uh, driving uh, ahead of yourself, uh, paying attention to the fact that you're going to be coming to a light uh, to slow down instead of accelerating towards it. All, all of those kinds of things. Uh, the, uh, uh, of course, medium term, thinking about what kind of car you want. Uh, studies have shown that fuel economy is actually pretty low on the list of most Americans' priorities when they're looking for a car. Uh, if we're concerned about how much we're paying for gasoline, bump that up your list of, of what you're looking for. And again, we saw it. We saw it in the, uh, in the late 70s. There were some very fuel-efficient cars coming out uh, because Detroit saw, and of course it was dominated by Detroit in those days, saw that consumers were looking for that. Uh, they don't see that now, from, as far as I can tell. Uh, and then even longer term, uh, where do you live? Uh, America has become increasingly uh, sprawled into exurban uh, areas uh, where people are commuting perhaps 60 miles to and from work, uh, and that is in the long term not sustainable uh, for a number of reasons, uh, including what you're paying for fuel. All right, I'm going to ask you one more question that kind of is in that uh, category there, and this is an argument I've heard people make just in conversation. I've heard it on TV. I've heard it in multiple places. The argument for or against electric cars. You know, it seems like this conversation comes up when these type of things happen. Um, and again, you're hearing more and more about it. But, you know, again, is this a natural reaction to this? Is this something people should be considering? Or is the electric car really just, does it really solve the problem? It can be a medium-term uh a significant part of the solution. Short term, I don't think so. Uh, short term, we're still producing a large share of our electricity from uh, fossil fuels. And, uh, you know, granted, not crude oil. Crude oil is a, a pretty low uh, share of electric generation. Uh, but um, I uh, you know, I think the, the dream, the ideal that a lot of people have is that it'll be solar uh, and or wind or geothermal powered electricity generation that uh, you'll be plugging your car into. That's going to take time, real time. Uh, in my second last book, a calculation I did uh, at the time, uh, if solar photovoltaics were to gain a 20% global market share in 20 years, we would have had to start manufacturing 10.4 million 200-watt solar panels a day, way more than we are manufacturing. Uh, I updated that calculation this past semester, and now it's over 11 million 
uh, energy demand has continued to grow during that time. And the gap has actually grown. So uh, there's no alternative energy that is standing ready to take up a large market share in the near term. Uh, my current students, I expect to live to see some pretty impressive transitions in our energy systems. I do not expect to live to see those transitions be impressive. Well, that'll take me to my last question. You mentioned your students, and I know we're on spring break now, and so you're not interacting with them as a lot of these things are happening in real time. But last week before they headed out, I know it was probably a lot of midterms and stuff, but I'm just curious if you're sensing, especially with your students who this is the industry they want to go into and they want to be a part of this, were they asking a lot of questions? Were they curious about what was happening and what impact this would have, as you said, on jobs, but also just the future of, of energy? Uh, yes, I, I was certainly seeing curiosity. Uh, I think that uh, there, n- nobody, of course, knows how things will unfold for the future. Uh, and so I, I was seeing uh, some level of anxiety comparable to what the average person is seeing, except the anxieties shifted a few degrees because of uh, where they are. Um, but I, I think some anxiety of the unpredictability of what is to come. Uh, some, uh, I think, recognition. I think most of my students that I talked to about this recognize that if this isn't resolved very quickly, and I frankly don't see how it could be, it will ultimately be uh, bringing uh, oil and gas production uh, back into the the limelight. In some ways it is in the limelight, or I wouldn't be here talking to Mm -hmm. you today. But uh, I think that it will, uh, I, I think there's some recognition that it will drive prices, it will drive demand. Hopefully it will drive increased demand for local U.S. oil and gas production. In some ways I find it shocking that uh, 10 years ago we were on the cusp of being import independent uh, because of the the shale plays. Uh, Now, 10 years later, we're talking about whether or not to stop importing from a, a hostile uh, nation. Uh, we, had, we had an opportunity that we didn't uh, sew up. Well, Dr. Hack, thank you very much for joining us today. And, and thank you for everyone who uh, is listening to this latest episode of uh, Faculty Chronicles. If you'd like to learn more about Marietta College, please visit www.marietta.edu.